Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Renewable Roadmaps brought to you by Renewable Resource Solutions. It's a bit of a milestone episode this week as we are entering double figures with the amount of episodes and also we broke the 1000 listen uh, mark over the weekend which is great so thank you for everyone's continued support. This week we are joined by Toby Naylor who is the Environment and Consent Specialist on Hornsey Project 2 at Orsted so let's get straight into it. Good afternoon, Toby. I've, I've done a bit of a brief introduction, but can you tell us who you are? Sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much for having me on, Chris. My name is Toby Naylor and I work as an environment and consent specialist on Hornsey Project 2 offshore wind farm for Orsted. Um, they're a Danish developer of offshore wind and Hornsey 2 is a project that's currently being built in the North Sea. And as I say, I work in the consents team. Um, on the project um, and I'll, I'll refer to consents quite often throughout this podcast I think and uh, essentially for anyone who isn't familiar with the phrase it's um, just a fancy legal word for permission so um, I'll go into it in a bit more detail later but it's essentially talking with some of our stakeholders and our engineers and um, working with our regulators to get permission to build various aspects of, of the offshore wind farm. Yeah, that's brilliant. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely come onto that into a bit more detail shortly. But to start off with, um, wh- where did this where did this journey start for you? Um, so my journey started uh, at Swansea Uni. Um, I grew up in mid Wales and we would very frequently go on our family holiday to South Wales in, in the Gower. Uh, for anyone who's familiar with that, it's just a spectacular part of the coast. Um, and I just sort of fell in love with that part of the world and always knew that I wanted to study, you know, around that area and as closely related to a subject to do with the sea that I could. So um, when the opportunity came around, I started a bachelor's degree um, at Swansea University studying marine biology. Um, and whilst I was there, I think around in my third year, we were studying a module called environmental impact assessment. And it is kind of as it sounds, you um, assess the impacts of developments within the marine environment. And at the time, there was a proposal to build Swansea Bay Tidal Lagoon. So it's, it's a large uh, structure that's built into the bay and harnesses the vertical movement of the tide essentially to produce renewable energy and the proposal was put forward um, and I was just fascinated with the way that the development itself interacted with the receiving environment so not just from an ecological perspective but from a sort of the social environment as well so the users of the sea and how it would affect them and from then on I kind of knew that that's the sort of stuff I wanted to study but I wasn't really sure what particular you know what what the next step would be I just knew that that was my interest so after a bit of deliberating um, I was fortunate enough to be able to go traveling with some of my course mates Um, we did a bit of Southeast Asia and then I ended up working in Australia and New Zealand and I was saving up for a master's over there Um, and then once I had managed to save up I put it towards uh, studying for uh, marine renewable energy 
at Plymouth University. Um, it was a fantastic master's and um, you, it was a real kind of deep dive into the different types of renewable energy technologies there are um, that are being you know, currently built and those being considered as well. And for anyone who's familiar with marine renewable energy, they'll know that the three kind of key types are offshore wind, wave and tidal. And just because of where offshore wind currently is, it's sort of the more mature and developed technology there, the, the course was sort of naturally steered towards that. And so we looked at the three different technologies and then the sort of three layers beyond that were the engineering of the three different types of technology, the policy behind what was driving this technology to uh, be developed in different countries, and then the environmental impacts of building these uh, different renewable energy um, devices, if you like. And there was this kind of recurring theme that came up and that was that offshore wind is this mature technology, it's growing exponentially, it's going to be what will kind of revolutionize offshore renewables. And the name Dong Energy and Orsted kept on coming up in lectures. Um, and I wasn't sure, I wasn't, didn't know at the time that they were the, the same company. Um, it was in 2017 when I was studying and it's also the year that Orsted changed its name from Dong Energy, which was Danish oil and natural gas into Orsted, uh, based on the Danish scientist Hans Christian Orstel, um, which is the correct way to say Orsted, because um, he discovered electromagnetism. And it was the company's kind of transformation away from black energy to green energy, um, which I just thought was absolutely kind of fantastic. It was one of the largest energy um, producers at the time, making this quite dramatic move into an industry that at the time hadn't really properly found its footing so it was quite a risky move um and you know fast forward a few years it's you know very well established industry producing a huge amount of power but as i say at the time i just kept on hearing dong energy or stood they're doing this they're building that um and i think maybe even the hornsey projects in the north sea were referred to a few times so my passion for you know the marine environment renewable energy suddenly became a passion for offshore wind um, and part of it kind of wanting to work for Orsted and so towards the end of my degree. You mentioned a gruelling presentation and was it quite a competitive application to go you know from your master's into Orsted straight into the position? How, how did that look? Yeah at the time it, it, it did feel very competitive you know um, there were a couple of formal interviews you know you're waiting there to go in and have the interviews next to a few of the other applicants and you're chatting politely with them and the next time you come along there's a there's a few less waiting there and then a few follow-up calls um the presentation itself but i think at the at the time the application itself was for environment and consents team and i think when the when people think of the offshore wind industry they think of technicians and engineers and so perhaps it perhaps flew under the radar of a fair few people that were looking to work in the offshore wind industry. But yeah, I um, applied, ended up working there. And um, at the time, this was probably two and a half years ago now, when I first started working. I think it's only getting more and more competitive. Um, offshore wind and Orsted are you know, making 
more and more kind of headlines every day and I think people are just becoming more and more aware that it's a, an exciting industry to work in um so yeah I I remember being relatively nervous at the time um going into this huge new company but um it's it's a fantastic place to work yeah so so you got the role you've been there as you mentioned for about two and a half years now so what does your your role actually look like then at Orsted? So I work in the consents team and the consents team is essentially working with our stakeholders and our engineers, understanding what it is we want to build and then seeking permission to build it. And depending on where the project is, so you take an offshore wind farm, it has a development sort of life cycle, the planning phase, the building phase, and then the operational phase. Um, between the planning and the building phase, you need to seek permission from the relevant authority, which in the UK's term is the UK government. And because Hornsey 2 was, uh, is a large project, it's considered a, an NSIP, which is a nationally significant infrastructure project. And because of that, there is a application process um, where you need to submit the information required to build the offshore wind farm. And that essentially sets out what it is you're planning to build, how you're going to do it, and the associated environmental impacts of doing that. And when I say environment, I mean ecological and the social environment. So um, any stakeholders essentially using that part of the sea need to be considered. So depending on where the project is in its life cycle, working in the consents mean team can mean very different things. So take Hornsey 2, for example, before it got consent, to be built, so before it got permission to be built. Um, the consent team were working together to pull together this application, submit that application to the UK government. The UK government then consider it, they consult with various stakeholders. Um, and then there's a, a kind of long consultation process where the project design is perhaps, perhaps refined. Plenty of kind of surveying and monitoring goes on to better understand the impacts of building the wind farm. And then the Secretary of State will make a decision as to whether they grant permission or refuse. And a few of your audience may have seen that New Year um, 2020, um, Hornsey Project 3 got consent um, to be built. And so that has now gone from being in the planning phase to being in, you know, that they're going ahead with the construction, um, or certainly starting the planning for construction. So. Hornsey 2 got permission back in 2016, um, which is the project I'm currently working on now. And when the Secretary of State, when the UK government grants permission, it's not just a straight kind of, yeah, go ahead and build the offshore wind farm, do it however you like. You have to build it in the exact same, well, at least within the kind of boundaries of how you said you were going to build it, what you were going to build. and because you've submitted a lot of information around what you expect the environmental impacts are going to be. There's a lot of work that also goes into sort of trying to verify and understand whether those predicted environmental impacts um, were indeed correct. And so Hornsey 2, when I first joined, 
it got consent in 2016. I joined two years later. And so the, the development consent had been granted. It got given the green light. It was two years into, you know, two years past that date. And so the consent team then has to work with that consent, work with that permission um, and look at and understand and comply with all of the conditions and requirements set out in within that consent. So um, that essentially is what the consent team is sort of set out to do. Um, but the very nature of building an offshore wind farm, you may submit, you know, what you think you're going to build in 2013. And when you actually come to build it, you know, contractors have new technologies, there are innovative new ways of doing things. And so you may not be able to build it, you may not want to build it in the same way that you got consent. So alongside complying with all of the what we need to, how we need to build it and the conditions within the consent, um, if ever we come across something that wasn't considered in the original application or one of our, con our contractors said, we know we said this, we carry out the survey with a boat, but we actually want to do it with the drone, for example. We may not have consent in that overarching consent to build the project to do that. So another part of the consent team kind of role is to apply for those additional permissions um, to understand what it is the contractor wants to do, how we're going to do it and seek permission. Um, and an interesting example of that is before you build an offshore wind farm, you're building it into the north. We're building it into the North Sea. And the mapping of the North Sea is quite limited. And so we want to understand as best we can the, the environment we're building this into, the seabed conditions, as much as we can really to kind of minimize the risk of anything going wrong, but to also ensure that we're building the offshore wind farm safely. Um, and part of that is carrying out geophysical surveys, which is essentially a an X-ray of the seabed. And the that kind of brings up any objects on the seabed that you might not want to, you know, go through with a cable installation um, tool. So some of these objects range from, you know, they can be a, a small boulder, large boulders, they can be pieces of archaeological significance. And occasionally you will find, because it's in the North Sea, UXOs. And a UXO is an unexploded ordnance. And there essentially were bombs dropped off during the Second World War um, by planes that were trying to make it home, British planes or German planes, uh, to lighten their load, to ease up on the fuel they were using so that they could try and make it home. And they would drop their cargo into the North Sea. And you know, 70 years later, we were scanning the seabed and we find all of these potential UXOs. And so we, you then go into kind of the engineers look at the data they've got back from these surveys and figure out which ones we can route around and which ones we have no choice but to remove it essentially. And um, that removal is done by detonating the UXO. And so we, because of the environmental impact of detonating a UXO, the consent team need to step in and essentially apply for a marine license to detonate these UXOs. So um, part of that is, again, what is it you're planning to do? How are you going to do it? And the environmental impacts. So it's, 
it's a real exercise in understanding underwater noise and how that travels and the receptors of underwater noise, which are marine mammals. And in particular in the North Sea, again, harbour porpoise. And so the application sets out how we're going to minimise the noise we're producing and how we're going to um, best carry out these works and, as I say, yeah, minimise the effects we're having. Um, so we'll submit that application to our regulators, the Marine Management Organisation, and they will go away, consult with the stakeholders. In this case, it's uh, Natural England. Um, they'll come back with comments. We'll respond to those and refine the design until the stakeholders are content with our proposals, essentially. Then we get granted the license. And similarly, it's in the exact same way as the overarching consent to build a project. You get given the consent to build it with a number of conditions. Um, so with the UXO detonations, we um, have to carry out the mitigation measures that we've employed. So um, there were a limited number of UXOs we could detonate in any given day. There was the certain spacing between the UXOs and um, various other measures that were employed. And um, so this was, a, this was a big part of my role when I first joined. This kind of came onto my desk and it was something that we had to apply for and something we've carried out now. Um, we've cleared the seabed where we can um, of these obstacles, moved the boulders out of the way, and we're now carrying out the, the actual works themselves, so installing infrastructure into the, into the North Sea into the next phase of, of the, you know, maybe the operations and maintenance phase, would you maintain a position with the consenting to, to monitor that it's going to plan still? How, how does that look from, from your perspective? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. Um, there's, um, we're, we're full steam ahead now. The work so far have been quite um, sort of pre pre uh, prepare, preparing for the installation of the infrastructure itself. And Last year, a lot of the onshore works were completed because remember there's, you know, in addition to this offshore wind farm, we've got a, on Hornsey 2, we've got a 40 kilometer onshore cable, which then connects to an onshore substation that we've built. Um, so last year we installed one of the export cables and had started foundation installation and installed the um, jackets for the offshore substation so essentially again the, the foundations for them and this year we're essentially completing the rest of the wind farm we're hoping to be operational by the start of 2022 um, and so this year is a, a very full-on year we've got the other two export cables so they transfer electricity from the wind farm which is um, 120 kilometers into the North Sea to onshore You've got the turbines themselves, the rest of the foundations, um, all of the cables that connect all of the turbines together, and then the top size, the, the bit you see sticking out of the sea on the substations themselves as well. Uh, and all of that is taking place this year, which is quite unique for a, an offshore wind farm to sort of be that ambitious with its program. Um, you usually split out foundations from turbine installation and array cables from export cables but we're trying to do all of it at once um, which makes it very exciting quite challenging um, and so for me at the moment my role is still very much on making sure that we are compliant which essentially just means as I say 
building it in the way we said we we're going to build it, which sounds quite obvious, but when you come down to the sort of minutiae and detail of what tool it is you're going to use, what footprint you're going to have on the seabed, the types of monitoring, where, where you're going to carry out the monitoring, um, there's a lot to kind of keep an eye on. And the busier the project is, um, the busier kind of the consent team are. So towards the end of this year, we'll hopefully sort of start to, well, it will still be very busy, but we'll hopefully have a lot of infrastructure installed. And so at that point, the consent team kind of goes into um, post-construction monitoring mode. And as I say, that's carrying out monitoring of parts of the wind farm where we've committed to carry out monitoring. Um, and that can be for monitoring seabed conditions or ornithological, so that's seabird monitoring. Um, and that monitoring will kind of inform future applications, future offshore wind farms. Um, but as you say, the wind farm is then operational, and so part of it gets handed over to our operation and maintenance team. Um, and the consent team plays a, a, a vital role within that as well. But it's, it is considered a, a separate phase. So once construction is complete, perhaps the, there's a, a consent team that deals with it being handed over to them in the operations and maintenance phase. Um, and part of that will involve um, monitoring the number of vessels we've got going out there. So the SOVs, the service operation vessels, um, and the CTVs, the crew transfer vessels to and from between turbines, making sure the monitoring uh, campaigns that we've committed to are being carried out as planned. Um, as I say, yeah, understanding where vessels are, where they're going, whether there's going to be any repairs needed, because that will involve more interaction with the environment. If we need to unbury a cable and repair it, there may be a, another application to go in there. So the consent team is, you know, plays a role in all aspects of an offshore wind farm's sort of life cycle. And um, my role has only ever been in the construction phase, which has just been, it's been fantastic so far. And I'd, I'd love the opportunity to kind of repeat that um, and refine on sort of what I've done, but I'm also open to doing the before and after parts as well. No, re really exciting. And it, it's interesting that you mentioned that the way this is being built, instead of in, in different phases as usual, it's a bit of a trailblazing way from the sounds of it then in the, in the sense that multiple projects are ongoing at any one time. And I think you've, you, you provided a really good explanation of your, your role, but in the same breath, you've also, for me anyway, and probably people listening, provided a really clear view of how the projects develop and, and, and move across different phases as well. So that, that's really interesting. And you've obviously, you, you did your studies, that, that was a number of years. You've been sort of in the industry working for, you know, two and a half years. Has there been a dramatic change since when you started in, in 2018 to now? Because I know there's been a lot of accelerations of stuff sort of globally in, in offshore wind. Have, have you noticed a sort of big difference from when you started to now? Um, in terms of the industry itself, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm, my role is very much focused on the project on Hornsey 2. Um, it's quite a heads down, get involved with the detail. Detail was sort of one step away from the people actually building the project. So every now and again, I, I, I do my best to take a step back from that and just have a look at, you know, where the offshore wind industry is. And every time I do, it's kind of accelerated even further. Um, and 
initially you would have to kind of go searching for those offshore wind headlines you know what which country is offshore wind being explored in currently which new technologies are being looked at where is floating wind currently i know you've had some previous guests talking about that um and it's it's just such an exciting industry to be working in um i mean on the face of it you think of you hear offshore winds and you just think of turbines offshore but there's so much more to it that can be explored and is being explored and it's being explored at a kind of exponential rate um you know anyone who's familiar with the offshore wind industry knows that has probably seen that picture of the turbines growing in size you know what they used to be 10 or 15 years ago and what they're going to be soon um and so everything is just growing in scale the turbines themselves you know these new 12 13 megawatt turbines that can power a home for two days in one spin is just extraordinary um and then the, the wind farms themselves are growing so you're installing more turbines in the same space um or even in bigger space and then the technologies like floating wind that open up new parts of the seabed as well so originally with monopile installations you're quite limited to shallow seabeds like 30 40 50 meters but with floating offshore wind you're you, you've then you know opened up a huge part of the rest of the world and um it's those kind of technologies and how we how we perhaps link offshore wind to hydrogen production um which is something also they're also looking at as well um so there's just yeah every time you kind of every time i take a step back and have a look at where the industry is it's kind of left me behind and <laughs> i'm struggling to keep up with where it is but um it's it's yeah it's hugely exciting uh fascinating place to work in um and i just yeah i can't wait to finish on haunty 2 and see what's next brilliant and i think julia um would be glad that you managed to get the one spin of a turbine can power a house for over two days um messaging yeah, it's, a, it's a classic line <laughs> yeah yeah you're, very, you're obviously very passionate about about the industry what in particular is it that you, you're passionate about would you say i think for me originally i wanted to get involved with offshore well i wanted to get involved with renewables um and offshore wind just because you know i think there's a there's a global problem that is going to require global cooperation on a scale that kind of hasn't been seen before that is that is climate change and it's you know it's not just going to require cooperation on a government sort of level or an industry level it's going to require cooperation on an individual level as well um and i loved the kind of idea that you could play a role in that even as a tiny cog within this massive machine working to mitigate the impacts of climate change um and so that's what kind of drove me towards wanting to work within the re renewables industry um and then offshore wind being the sort of answer to do that almost you know the quickest solution to re reducing our reliance on fossil fuels um because of the scale that offshore wind is going at currently um but that passion is kind of twofold because i also now that i work in the industry i absolutely love seeing people getting excited by offshore wind and renewables and wanting to make a difference um and just because of the nature i think of you know that passion itself it's usually younger people who are who were in my position of you know going through uni or has have just graduated and they've got a huge amount of enthusiasm for wanting to work in the industry but they don't really know you know where they want to where they should target that 
enthusiasm. So I just love hearing, you know, from people and in those kind of situations that want to get involved, aren't, you know, perhaps sure where they want to get involved because, you know, when I spoke about my journey into the industry, it's quite easy now to talk about that journey and to retrospectively sort of make it sound as if I had a plan and that one step led to the other and it was all very logical. You know, Swansea Uni, Tidal Power. The next one is Marine Renewable Energy at Plymouth Uni. That was offshore wind and then landed at Orsted, the largest developer of offshore wind. And it's kind of like, oh yeah, of course, that, that was the plan all along, but it absolutely wasn't. And if anyone had asked me at the time, you know, what, where, where are you planning to go to next? I wouldn't have had a, a clue. So, um, and I remember reaching out to people at that time as well, and just wanting to talk to people working in the industry, listen to what their sort of day-to-day -day was. And so my passion is also, you know, yeah, hearing from other people um, in that position that want to get involved in the offshore industry and want to get excited, essentially, are excited by renewables and offshore wind yeah i think i think it was steve jobs that said you can't connect the dots looking forward you can only connect them looking back which is kind of that's brilliant yeah, yeah. What, what what you mentioned there and that, that's really really interesting and what what sort of advice are you giving to these people then when when you're speaking to them and what advice would you maybe give to someone that's listening now that wants to get into the industry i usually you know i guess putting austin on your LinkedIn means you get a fair few messages from LinkedIn. So if anyone's listening to this and was in a similar position to me, then please feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Absolutely. And I'd be happy to talk to them there. But um, generally it's, you know, the first piece of advice is sort of what I've just said. You know, if you feel like you want to get involved in an industry, but you're not really sure where to tackle your efforts, um, just keep keep going keep that enthusiasm up keep applying um and keep the pressure on yourself to you know if you know a deadline for a certain application has to be in or that Orsted at the moment currently has an apprenticeship program open till mid to late april just get that date in your diary and commit yourself to writing an application and you know give it your all as well talk to a few people if you need to present something, practice in front of, you know, your family or friends. And then alongside that, you know, if there aren't any applications, reach out to people in the industry, talk to them, understand what they do. Um, don't be afraid to start a conversation essentially. And um, LinkedIn is where I've had a lot of those kind of conversations with people um, who are interested and want to get involved, but aren't really sure um, how to. Um, so there's that. And then I think to give yourself a bit of a head start, I would just read up about the industry, um, spend a bit of time looking through some offshore wind articles, even scientific papers, although they can be a bit dry, perhaps go for, you know, sign up to a few newsletters or tailor your newsfeed on uh, Facebook or Twitter, sign up to a few pages and just get yourself familiar with the terminology in offshore wind. It's a very kind of foreign industry, I think, to a lot of people. It's it's sort of out of sight, out of mind. It's, it's all happening offshore. I don't really know what goes on. And so getting yourself familiar with the different contractors involved in offshore wind, the different suppliers, the various the, the supply chain in whichever country you're living in, 
and I guess just yeah the terminology for offshore wind what is an offshore substation what is reactive compensation station all this kind of stuff um, and I think you'll naturally just fall into a position where you know you're talking with a few people you understand what they're saying a job application comes up and you feel confident enough to put in a solid application and um, I think you know that for me was enough um, and it, it, it perhaps isn't you know doesn't work for everybody but um, as I say please please feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn if you you're in a kind of if you're a young professional and seeking any kind of advice like that that's brilliant and um, obviously your name will be in the notes for this this show so to anyone listening simply put that in LinkedIn and you'll be able to find Toby quite easily I'm gonna get a flurry of thousands of <laughs> yeah, yeah might regret, regret that saying it. yeah yeah <laughs> um, no, I mean, coming coming towards the end of it now and, and probably one last question closing off. And I know earlier you talked about when you take a step back and, you know, have a bit of an oversight of what's going on and that's constantly developing, uh, expanding on that a little bit. From your perspective, what, what does the actual future of the industry look like to you? I think the, the future of the industry is that originally the countries and governments that got behind offshore wind I think did it for as Austin did with you know Danish government and the UK government particularly they backed offshore wind because they saw its potential and I think they understood the environmental benefits of building offshore wind farms and as I say reducing our reliance on fossil fuels but for a number of countries around the world isn't you know it's almost not a good enough reason currently it needs to be economically viable as well um, and there needs to be public backing for it for governments to get behind it so and I think what we're seeing at the moment is almost like a trickle down from some of these you know established offshore wind industries in countries that have been backing it for a while is that it's proving itself to be not only a huge environmental benefit in terms of reducing green power but also something that is economically a very sort of viable alternative and so I think what we'll see is you know more of these sort of countries around the world that you wouldn't think to have to have invested in offshore wind like Vietnam for example is one that's kind of looking into offshore wind and you'll just start to see this offshore wind boom around the world and it really will be an exponential growth you know, East states in the US at the moment, New York, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, they're all looking into offshore wind. They've got the seabed on the East coast of the US to get away with it. I think the West coast of the US is a little deeper, so they might perhaps rely on floating wind. But as soon as this, as soon as the technology sort of prove themselves, the offshore wind farms are, you know, producing profit because essentially that's, you know, developers will need to have an economic, um, reason for doing this as well as the environmental um you will just see a huge sort of expansion of offshore wind around the world and that means the industry itself the people in the industry as well um we just get a huge diverse range of people working in it bringing their knowledge um from their part of the world to the industry and that will only ever kind of you know benefit everyone working in it and the industry itself so i think the last couple of years, the way we've seen offshore wind sort of transform and appear in headlines, um, 
you're going to see that on a much greater scale over the next decade. And it's interesting actually seeing, you know, a lot of what we're talking about at the moment is the targets for 2030. Um, and there's very little talk about what happens after 2030, but it's, it will only ever kind of keep growing. So um, it's, a, it's a fantastic one to, to keep your eye on for sure. No, that's brilliant. And yeah, Celia Anderson mentioned that, you know, just because we get to 2030 doesn't mean it stops. It's, it carries on from there as well. And interesting points about the, the stuff in America. I'm actually at some early stage discussions with projects over there at the moment. Mm -hmm. So um, exciting times. And, and over the next um, few weeks, I'm going to have a few people from the States coming on as well and talking about what's going, going on over there. So, I mean, going to have to call it there, Toby. That's been absolutely fantastic. Uh, definitely have to get you back on, you know, in the future to catch up and see, you know, this benchmark conversation to see what it's looking like in, you know, three to six months time, maybe, and, and see where things are at then. But, but in the meantime, thank you so much for your time. That was, that was brilliant. Thank you very much for having me on, Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again to Toby for joining us this week really insightful and unique view from the consenting team a bit beyond the engineering team there's so much breadth to this industry so please join us again next week and, and remember renewable resource solutions specialize in end-to-end -end recruitment into renewables projects if you are looking for a new role we appreciate that it's quite a volatile market at the moment but there is stuff going on so if you want a confidential chat then please do send me a message on LinkedIn and and the same same breadth of that if you're you know currently looking to build a team there's a bit of a hidden talent market out there at the moment and we're doing really well at uncovering that so please do get in touch and listen in next week see ya